This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. 9.16am, you're listening to The Morning Run with Shazana, Phil and Anwar. Let's get a quick update on the FBM KLCI. Clinging on to the green. That's right, it's up 0.14% at 1,458. But Singapore Straits Times down 0.04% at 3,121. All right, let us turn our attention to the outlook for ASEAN banks. Now, a few days ago, the ASEAN Asian Development Bank revised down its growth forecasts for Southeast Asia to 4.3% in 2023 and 4.7% for the next year. This is due to weak external demand and lackluster performance in the manufacturing sector. And although rising rates have caused volatility, these high borrowing costs have also enabled banks to see better margins this year. But as the Fed signaled that rate hikes are not the base case anymore, what will this mean for lenders in the region and how will uneven economic outlook impact their financial trajectory. For some thoughts on this, we have on the line with us Rina Kwok, Credit Analyst of Asian Financials with Bloomberg Intelligence. Good morning, Rina. Thanks as always for joining us. Can we get your thoughts on ASEAN Bank's resiliency? Given that global growth is expected to slow in 2024, how resilient are banks in the face of these headwinds? Morning. Thank you for having me, team. I think that's a good question. Now, we expect most of the major ASEAN banks could face modest asset quality worsening next year amid a more challenging environment. Now, higher credit costs could materialize for unsecured retail loans as well as loans to SMEs likely to be at the most risk. Yeah, we believe the impact of defaults on the major lenders' balance sheet would be manageable as they are offset by the solid provisions as well as the tighter risk control built over the years. In terms of profitability, which region's banking sector within Southeast Asia could underperform peers next year in terms of profitability and who will lead? I think within Southeast Asia, most of the major Indonesian banks' profitability underpinned by strong loan growth into next year could continue to beat their ASEAN banks' peers next year. However, for Thai banks, while lagging, their profitability is likely to improve next year as well. Uh, we do expect Thai banks to continue to resort to active loan management for their non-performing loans to bolster the balance sheet. And that being said, you know, credit costs could remain elevated in the range of 1.3 to 1.5 next year due to a sluggish economic recovery in Thailand. Now, with the volatility in markets and an expected slowdown, how robust are the capital of Southeast Asian banks to cushion credit losses in any country standouts? I think major ASEAN banks' robust capital buffers continue to be a key credit strength and they could actually cushion credit losses in the interest rate-induced slowdown as well as possible knock-on effects on the market volatility. Now, as we look into their capital positions, we expect the major ASEAN banks' capital to remain solid next year, though on the normalising trend, given moderate asset growth, measurable credit losses, as well as resident earnings, partly offset by the modest dividends. Now, unrealized losses, you know, on investment securities could actually reverse for certain lenders in the region if some of the central banks start to cut policy rates in this uh, region as inflation eases. Now, in our peer group, as of second quarter 2023, the core capital ratios, what we call the common equity tier one capital ratios of the major Indonesian banks were among the highest in our peer group. So with that in mind then, Rina, what does this mean for the performance of Asian banking sector's dollar bonds in 2024? Yeah, I think as we 
sum it up, I think, you know, major ASEAN banks, dollar bonds performance could be resilient next year as most of the lenders' risk buffers are solid enough to cushion potentially modest spread widening as macro headwinds. Now, manageable refinancing nets for the major lenders in this region are also positive for the bond technicals. The follow-up Credit Suisse followed by the write-down of $17.5 billion of additional tier 1 bonds, which led to a price slump. Does the picture look different now and do we foresee supply risks for ASEAN Bank's AT1s into 2024? Sure, I think this is definitely one of the kingly ward topics for the global banking sector. Now, as we look into the global banking sector, global banking dollar AT1s have broadly recovered since the credit seed AT1 saga, and several large banks have actually started to come back to the primary market for issuances. Now, we recently saw a jumbo demand for UBS AT1s. However, as we turn to Southeast Asia, um, AT1s, or what we call the additional tier 1 bonds issuances by ASEAN banks, appear to be low in 2024, with possibly negative net supply. And this is due to a couple of reasons, such as low refinancing needs, given the lender's solid capital reserves, as well as muted growth in risk-weighted assets arising from a weaker loan growth outlook amid the interest rate uncertainty, as well as the growing macro headwinds. Now, Rina, in the scenario where regional interest rates remain higher for longer, I mean, how concerned should investors be about non-call risk for ASEAN Bank dollars at 81 in 2024? Sure. Now, within Southeast Asia, we only have one dollar AT run from TMB Bank, which is a major Thai bank that is callable next year. And we actually see low non-call risk for TMB Bank, given that the lender has ample call capital of at least 8% above the regulatory minimum hurdles. Now, for TMB Bank, as earnings accruals are well able to accommodate risk-rated asset consumption, even if it chooses not to refinance its outstanding AT1 if interest rate remains elevated, and this further limits the non-core risk for TMB. Rina, thank you so much for speaking with us. That was Rina Kwok, Credit Analyst of Asian Financials with Bloomberg Intelligence, giving us the outlook for ASEAN banks as we head into 2024. Seems on pretty good footing, uh, but again, anything can happen moving forward, I suppose. We'll be keeping an eye on that. It's 9.23 in the morning. Let's take a look at some of the earnings reports from the Malaysian equity landscape that have crossed our table this morning. We do have Astro Malaysia. They posted a net loss of 47 million ringgit for its third quarter ended October 31st. And this is the operator's first ever loss-making quarter. This is a reversal of fortune from a net profit of 5.8 million ringgit in the same quarter a year ago. Now, Astro has attributed this to the voluntary separation scheme of VSS exercise to reduce its headcount by 20%. This cost the group about 52 million ringgit and also Astro expects this to be paid back within 12 months. And results were lower than analyst expectations. I mean, I think, um, of course, the cost issue is the BSS is one big problem. But if you look at the top line also, it has been a bit of a struggle for Astro, right? If you break down the revenue number, they have subscription, ADEX, GoShop mm. and others. If you reflect, reflect, they actually closed down GoShop uh, recently, which really reflects, I think, the challenges for that segment. But even the subscription business has also, you know, experienced some pressure as well recently, as well as ADEX flow. I think that's been a big challenge. And I guess the debate is what's the outlook like for for some 
you know, an outfit like this where you have the likes of Netflix, Disney, Prime, all trying to eat your pie. So you mentioned the uh, subscription. They have been seeing declining TV subscription. I think ARPU was up, registering about 99 ringgit and 80 sen on the back of new TV packs and broadband bundles. Mm. But despite that, the total numbers of subscribers have continued to decline um, less, uh, down 2% on year post-sporting seasons. I mean, I think looking ahead, consumers could continue to be cautious with their discretionary spending in view of elevated cost of living pressures. I guess more people could be looking to cut the cable if they see that uh, other mm. costs in their uh, li- li- livelihoods are going to rise. And I think that's why it's so important for them to generate their own content, right? I think you've seen actually a lot of generation of local content coming through in addition to just relying on English Premier League, all the football shows, right? I think that's also, I think, one of the biggest challenges. How do you kind of create compelling content so that you actually get people driving to your pipe? I mean, with Astro, what's interesting was they did a lot of they do have a lot of tie ups with streaming platforms, right? Mm. I think Disney Plus is only available through them, and they have tie ups with uh, other uh, streaming platforms like Ichii. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. I have cut the cable with them myself, but in any case, um, this doesn't seem to uh, help so far or, or hasn't helped in this quarter at least in terms of subscription rates. And it's also reflected I think in analyst recommendations I think if you've seen it used to be a pretty much darling I bit about two years ago right a proportionate larger proportion that were recommend buys rather than sells now it's actually flipped the other way only one buy four holes and eight sells uh, trading at the moment at 35 cents. Okay, let us turn our attention to another sector of the economy, and that's Yinsen. Yinsen posted its highest quarterly net profit of 248 million ringgit for the third quarter ended October 31st. And this is a 60% increase compared with 155 million ringgit a year earlier on the back of higher revenue. Quarterly quarterly revenue grew 62% to 2.8 billion ringgit. For the first nine months of the fiscal year, net profit rose 64% to 686 million ringgit, mainly due to an increase in engineering, procurement, construction, installation and commissioning revenue. Well, I think this is a really interesting stock. I mean, this stock has been going, doing extremely well, trading at 258. There are, guess, how many recommendations for hold and sell? You're going to tell us. Zero. All analysts have a buy recommendation for this stock. It is doing extremely well. I mean, not only has it done very well in the oil and gas sector, it's diversified itself to the renewable energy sector as well. And also, we've seen some tie-ups recently on the renewable energy space for Yinsen. So this is really, really, truly a darling in I think if we look at how Yinsen is viewed, the FPSO market is booming with an estimated 12 FPSO awards in 2024. Um, and I think other FPSO other FPSO offer, operators have limited capacity to take on new jobs. So perhaps this is something that Yinsen will be looking to capitalize on, mm. perhaps. It's a it's a true point. I think if you look at the turnover of the business, they have actually got their offshore marine EPCCIC and a non-EPCIC. That's still doing very well, right? It's basically growing quarter on quarter. But of course, the renewable energy space, which they are trying to make for its in, is still relatively small, but presumably growing much faster in the future. All right. Well, it's 9.28 in the morning. Um, We're going to head into the 9.30 a.m. news bulletin. But uh, don't go away because we're going to be coming back with WTF or What's the Focus, our weekly recap of the stories and themes that have dominated the news cycle this week. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.